All right, Brian Lake is not here, which makes me mad. He's actually doing something awesome, but that's okay. So I have to do an announcement, and I hate doing announcements because I just want to flow with the Holy Spirit into this stuff. But here we go. Here's the announcement. TVA Connect, it's so crucial. If you're not signed up for this, you do it right now. I mean right now. Like I said, right now. Grab your phone, get that phone number, and text me, and then you're signed up. Now here's why it's important and why I don't mind doing this announcement. is that last one, the connection card. We have digital connection cards. We don't have paper right now. But here's why this is crucial. Because that's where we have our prayer request. We want to be praying for you as a church, and there's groups all around that want to be praying for you. I don't care what it is. Sometimes we're fearful of saying, hey, will you pray for me? Either it's big or we think it's too small. Listen, the Lord is concerned about every detail in our lives, so we need each other to be praying for each other, okay? So please, do that if you've never done it, all right? Say yes to me. You got to talk to me. You guys were talking in worship. You got to talk to me while I'm up here too, or I'll die. You know me. (laughs) how we see things makes all the difference let me say it again how we see things makes all the difference are your eyes looking up to behold the lamb of god an amateur photographer was taking a class from a professional photographer in new york city for one assignment she chose her six-year-old daughter as her subject and asked her to sit on a serene hillside in upstate new york near a lake As she focused in with her camera, a sudden storm swooped in and the clouds billowed up and the waves of the lake began slashing back and forth. It was eerie and beautiful all at the same time. Near the lake stood a single tree, ravaged, branches waving. She couldn't resist. She gave the tree and the storm a prominent place in the picture alongside her daughter. Thinking she did a really good job, the woman was surprised when her instructor pointed out a problem with the photo. The tree distracted from her primary focus, the little girl. See how it catches the eye, the instructor said? It competes with your subject. You need to choose one subject and leave the other out. You see, this observation applies to more than just good photography skills. As disciples of Jesus, we must center our attention only on him. Like amateur photographers, we often are attracted to the storms surrounding us, and we can lose focus of our primary subject, Jesus. See, just like the times we live in, it can distract us. And while we need to be discerning, we can lose fact that God is in control, that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over the storm. He's Lord over world history. He's Lord of all things that are happening on earth right now. And we need to get our eyes back on the primary subject, Jesus. Just like when Peter was in the boat, he's walking on the water, he's doing great. But when he takes his eyes off the primary subject, Jesus, what happens? He sinks. It's the same with us. We too can start to sink when our eyes look at the chaos in the world. We need to see how big our Jesus is. Listen, God cares about your storm, but here's the problem. We often start with the storm, and the storm looks really big, and Jesus starts to look really small, and we get overwhelmed. I was, you know, Dave's message last week, he talked about the Barnes study, 
and how the Barna study said, and this is, listen, this is pre-pandemic. And he said, very little of the church is reading the Bible. Well, Barna did another report during the pandemic, during quarantine, and that little bit of people who were reading the word of God now aren't. How can we get a picture of Jesus unless we're in the word of God? Listen, everything's designed right now to keep us apart, keep us out of the word of God. How can we see how big Jesus is when we're not in his word? See, it's important I start with God first and then my storm. If we start with the storm, we can become self-centered and overwhelmed and despair because our eyes aren't on Jesus. So listen, I've been feeling this for a couple weeks. The Lord's been leading me and the Holy Spirit's been saying, you need to show them a picture of me again. That's a tall order for a weak man like myself, but we're gonna try it. In Malachi in our readings, it says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now listen, this is 400 years before Jesus ever touches the earth. And he says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Who is that messenger? John the Baptist, 400 years before. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come. 400 years, who's the messenger of the covenant? Jesus. He says, whom you desire. Do you desire him, child of God? The messenger of the covenant, are you eyes on him? Are they down on the floor like John? And you need that voice to remind you, look up. Is that you this morning? So I want to talk about the messenger of the covenant. We need to keep him as our primary focus. J.B. Phillips wrote a book, actually one that I grew up reading was called Disciplined by Grace. But this one is called Your God is Too Small. And he said this, people everywhere, whoops, oh, I'm not doing it. People, well, I don't know. Well, you might have to help me out, darling. People everywhere tend to shrink down their concept of God to the size of their own ideas and feelings. Listen, listen to me. If I felt like a Christian, if that's what it was based on, I don't think I'd be a Christian because I don't always feel like a Christian. But by faith in Jesus Christ, I wake up every day and say, I will believe and I will have faith. Thinking along the same lines, Don McAuliffe said this, people have created the God of my cause the God of my understanding, the God of my experience, the God of my comfort, the God of my success, and the God of my nation. He goes on to say, any God who fits the contours of me will never really transcend me, never really be God with a capital G. And any God who doesn't kick the bars out of the prison of my perceptions will be nothing but a trivial God. So today I wanna to talk to you about what the Bible calls the supremacy of Christ. In the simplest of terms, to affirm the supremacy of Christ is to affirm that Jesus is God. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines supreme as highest in rank or authority, or highest in degree or quality. In essence, there is none better. The supreme of something is the ultimate, Jesus is the ultimate in power, glory, authority, and importance. See, Jesus' supremacy, and supremacy means first. Is he first? Jesus' supremacy over all is stated primarily in Colossians. 
Now, I love this little book. I used to not like it as much. Ephesians was probably my favorite, but Colossians has grown to be one of my favorite letters in the Bible. Colossians is a little letter to a little place Paul never visited. It has four chapters and 95 verses of Paul stating the beauty and the supremacy of Jesus. Just like our days, the enemy was attacking with lies to obscure the truth. Listen, how many of you know Satan's plan is always to obscure Jesus? He's gotta do it, he knows if he doesn't do it, if he can get the church believing lies, we won't be powerful because we won't be looking at the all-powerful one. And he wants to get our eyes and obscure who Jesus is. Theirs was Gnosticism, and we won't go into what that is, but here's what they were believing. There were people saying Jesus is less than God. He's okay. He's maybe like an angel or a little less than an angel. He only seems to be like God. Maybe he became God. All these lies. And the second, there's a threat of secret knowledge that only a select few can get if you do certain things. It was the special sauce. Send in 999 and you've got the special secret code. And Jesus was starting to look really small. They were losing the subject of the photo. And here's Paul's response. I love it in Colossians. It's so cool. Just the first sentence, man, it's like Paul got a, a hammer and he's like, boom, I'm just gonna take you out right now. Listen to what he says. The sun is the image, remember that word, the image of what? The invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, in everything, he might be the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Was there some things? Or does it say all things? All things. Well, wait, wait. maybe COVID-19 is not a part of that. No, it says all things. It doesn't matter what it is. All things is all things, right? How's that for being very literal from me? Thanks. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I love it. Out of the gates, the sun is the image of the invisible God. How many of you know nobody can see God? He's invisible. Then why did Jesus say the pure in heart shall see God? Is it a contradiction? No, because if you know the scriptures, and Paul says Jesus is the image of God. When you see him, you see the Father. Jesus said that. When you see me, you see the Father. Listen, to know Christ is to know God because he is God. Hebrews says this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, and I love this part, sustaining all things by the power of his word. Isn't that amazing to think about? Listen, what's amazing? Is he sustaining everything with his word, with his voice, and yet he speaks to you. Man, that should rock our world. The one who holds the distant planets and universe 
All those things with the power of his word would speak to someone like me. That's amazing. He's holding all things together by his powerful word. Ever wonder why the Bible says do not worship an idol? An idol is an image. Remember that word, image of something. It was because there was already an image of God, pre-existent, co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Paul said he is the image of God. Listen, it's offensive to worship a piece of stone or wood in the image of a bird or nature or a person that doesn't speak or hear when our God speaks and hears and responds to you and I. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In his essence, God is invisible like we talked about. But Jesus Christ has revealed him to us. Nature can reveal the existence, power, and wisdom of God, but nature cannot reveal the essence of God. It is only through Jesus Christ that the invisible God is perfectly revealed. It says he's the firstborn, which sounds kind of confusing, right? If he's preexistent and co-eternal. Paul is not saying Jesus was created. It doesn't mean the first created being. Jesus is not a created being. He's eternal. It's the language of inheritance. It's a rank over creation. It's a kingly title. In Psalm 98, God the Father said he would declare over his son, you are the firstborn. It's a kingly title. It means to rule over and be exalted over all others. An imperfect example is Solomon. Solomon was called the firstborn of King David. Was he the firstborn? No, they actually had a child that died. And he had many other sons, Absalom, others, the firstborn. It's a title conferred onto him. So Jesus is the firstborn or first in rank over all creation. And you know why? Because he owns it. He is the creator, not the created. Paul states in his thing of what it means to be firstborn. It's the coolest statement. All things were created by him and for him. That's why he's first. It says, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all have been created by him and for him. All things, visible and invisible, what is that? That's the natural and the spiritual world. Thrones, rulers, and authorities are evil forces, the angels that rebelled. So listen to this, I love this. So from angels to ants, dirt to the devil, black holes and dark matter to the platypus. He created it all. It was by him and for him. And we'll ask him what in the world's up with the platypus one day. <laughs> Jesus is the firstborn of all because he created all things. It's no wonder that when he was here, the winds and the waves obeyed him and diseases and death fled from him. He is the master over all. Now I want you to think about this. Think about this. The one who hung the stars into place is the one who hung there on the cross. Or think of this. Jesus was executed by the very hands he made. And he willingly did it. He was executed by your hands and your sin. You see, even though it's about the supremacy of Jesus, we actually find out who we are. 
It says all things were created for him and by him. In that verse, that phrase right there, the two basic existential questions are answered of who am I and why am I here? Or we might say, what is my purpose? It means you were created by him and for him, for Jesus. You are not here for you. You are here for him. That's your purpose. You exist to be in a relationship with him. No job, no husband, no wife, no fame, no circumstance, no relationship, no skill set, education, family will bring you true purpose and satisfaction apart from Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Verse 17, so cool. Paul's the man. Had a little help from the Holy Spirit, I guess. So we'll, you know, it's all right. But in verse 17, he says, he is before all things. Jesus, before all things, and he holds all things together. Jesus is eternal, coexisting with the Father and the Holy Spirit. John 17, five, and this is such a great verse. When somebody's like, well, Jesus was just a man. Out of Jesus' own lips, out of his own mouth, in the red letters, Jesus says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. In John 16, 28, he tells the disciples, I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. He is before all things. And it says he holds it all together. Isn't that cool? He is intimately involved in every moment in detail of his creation. He's not aloof. He didn't create the laws of nature and say, see ya. That's deism. And just to be clear, he holds nature together. He is not nature. Don't worship nature, but he holds it all together. It's in him that we move, breathe, and exist. He's holding it all together, the whole universe. Hebrews 1, 2, I already said it, but it says he sustains everything by the power of his word. Think of this, everything. Every planet and its moon or moons that orbit, he holds it together. Every cell that divides, every electron in its many little orbit, every cell, think of it, he sees it, he's aware. Every electron in its many little orbit, the cosmos, every detail, the depths of the sea where man can't even go, he sees it, he knows it. Every detail of creation on earth is sustained by his word. But as amazing as that is, he is intimately involved in every detail of your life, good and bad and ugly. The same one who knows the vastness of the universe, knows every hair on your head or lack of. He has them numbered. And Psalm says, he collects your tears and remembers. That's how great he is. He's so good. Jesus said, not a bird will fall to the ground apart from the care and will of my Father. Listen, if that's how intimate and involved he is with a single bird, how much more is he involved with you, oh, you of little faith? Jesus said, if the Father knows the flowers need clothes and he provides them in beauty, how much more will he clothe you, oh, you of little faith? Jesus is saying, nothing happens apart from the will of our Father in heaven. 
His will is holding all things together. Listen, science can only give us a natural explanation, but it can't give you the ultimate explanation. It can't give you spiritual explanations that he's holding all together. Science is just trying to catch up. That's all they're doing. He holds all things together and his will is, I love this, I love this. Listen, he holds all things together and his will, not yours, not mine, his will is moving the whole of human history and everything in creation towards a specific end in mind. A day that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's our God. And he is head of the body of the church so that he might have the supremacy. Say supremacy with me, say it, supremacy. It means first, he's first, he's head of the church. It indicates a relationship with his body. We are intimately bound to him, forged on the cross of his blood. He's the firstborn among the dead ones. We will cast our crowns before the lamb of God who rose from the grave in power. He's the alpha and omega. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Age to age, he stays the same. He's not sleeping or slumbering. He's spearheading a new creation that he may be first. He's the first one out of the tomb. First one out of hell, death and darkness and the grave. And he's also delivered all who trust in him out of hell and the grave. And therefore, he should get the supremacy. Again, supremacy means first. Listen, if he's first, then what does that make you? Second, he's first, you're second. Child of God, why are you still fighting for control? When will you trust him? Trust him with all your heart. He deserves the supremacy. Listen, when you know he's supreme, you say what John the Baptist said, more of him and less of me. And what that means is, is more of Jesus and less of you. See, before you know God, you want to be your own God. You never say it that way, but it's how you live. And here's the, the sad part, is Christ followers forget and they try to have control. And all it is is trying to be your own God again. Listen, whether you know him or don't, FYI, you're a lousy God. You haven't created one thing in your whole life except trouble, confusion, pain, and sin. You're like, thanks a lot, Brian. <laughs> but unlike us, Jesus puts right a universe that's gone wrong through the cross. And through him, to reconcile, that's the most beautiful word, word right there. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. When we were his enemies, it says he was reconciling us. Isn't that crazy? And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. See, it's not just our redemption. It's things on earth and things in heaven by making what? Peace through his blood shed on the cross. Listen, reconciliation means peace. It's to make peace. Reconciliation is to bring together that which is apart, to make peace where there's war, friendship where there's enemies, right where there was once wrong. And it's not, listen, you gotta hear this. It's not God having to be reconciled to us. It's we have to be reconciled to God. Reconciliation made peace with us through his blood on the cross. Apparently I'm going through puberty. 
It's a way to take a serious moment and just be like, but we're not live, so it doesn't matter. And you guys know me anyway, so whatever. Reconciliation made peace through his blood on the cross. Not you, not your good works, not your bad works. The question is, it's not whether you think you're right with God, but the question is whether he thinks you are. And he said, all have sinned and fallen short of perfection of his glorious standard. The penalty is death and hell unless you simply trust and believe upon Jesus Christ. Have you been reconciled to him? Or are you too prideful to admit you're a sinner? Listen, this is a great definition of pride right here. Pride means you're first, that you wanna be the supremacy. See, if you're a believer, not only did he create you, but he shed his blood for you. He rescued you. Jesus deserves the supremacy. And if you know him and have been saved from your sins, you belong to him. He gets the supremacy in every breath you take, in every day of your life. Listen, you exist to glorify him. It's his breath that you're breathing. It's his days that you're living. Remember, reconciliation means to make peace. But it's not just our reconciliation alone. But it said the invisible and visible is also being reconciled. The natural and the spiritual world. That means angels and demons too. Do you know what it says about creation? Creation is groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed so it can be clothed in its newness. It's redemption is the word right there. And even in the spiritual world has been reconciled. And that sounds weird to our ears, right? Because we know there's a battle. We know Satan's out there, right? We know the world's full of lies and chaos. It sounds weird because we're like, doesn't reconciliation mean, mean peace? What was the nature of peace made? Because our peace is different than that of creation or angels. We know that he took the punishment for our sins, but here's the peace that he made with evil. He suppressed Satan on the cross. It's sort of like the Pax Romana. How many of you remember in middle school or high school history, the Pax Romana? Somebody better help me out because in the first service they're like, I ain't doing nothing because he's gonna call on me again, so I ain't doing it. The Pax Romana means the peace of Rome. I want you to think of that. It meant if there was a disturbance in their empire, the Roman army would come and make peace and they would make rebellion subject to them. See, that's what the cross did, how it brought peace to his enemies. He took the punishment of the sins of the world and he made death and powers and authorities and demons invisible and visible subject to him. See, the cross has many facets to it. It disarmed demonic forces. Paul elaborates further in, Col in Colossians in 2.15. He says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. And in the Greek, it was a picture of the Romans' parades that would come in when a commander won the battle. He would come back into Rome to great cheers and victory. And it was a long parade and he would take the enemies and he would parade them so all Rome would see the enemies captured. And they would go through and they would have the spoils of the victory. That's what he's saying happened when Jesus was on the cross and rose from the grave. It was a picture of that Roman military. Jesus did the same. But you're like, Brian, 
We still got to armor up, right? What, what about that verse in Ephesians? We have to be on our guard because the devil has military-like schemes against us. What does it mean they are subject to him? Hebrews 2.8 clarifies, and this is really helpful when you see the world. In putting everything under Jesus, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. See, at this time, we don't see all things under his feet, but they are. The word of God says it is. How many of you know that many wars, even after they've officially ended in a decisive battle and the, the news thing came out, war is over. How many of you know that sometimes those wars went on for months or years? The enemy was still running around. Even in WW2 and World War II, this happened. There were even big battles. It's the same with the devil. Even though the enemy is defeated at the cross, he is still running around, powerful in some ways, but not as powerful and child of God. If you know him, he has no legal rights in you. And ultimately, he's awaiting his fate to be captured and defeated. Jason asked me the other day, why does Satan still believe he can defeat Jesus? Pride. It blinds him. He's seething with hate and pride, and it totally blinds him. At the cross, all his legal rights were lost. All the legal rights were lost. The battle was won. Peace was enforced. He was made subject. We're just waiting for the wrap-up and call to resist the enemy. And there are still battles that need to be played out. But here's what you need to hear. On the cross was the decisive victory. And we sang about it. They are disarmed. So against the believer, what weapons do demonic spirits have? They are disarmed except for their ability to deceive and create fear. And there's a lot of that in the world right now and in the church. We are in a time of intense fear and lies and chaos. And we have to get our eyes on the true subject of the photo, onto Jesus. He has supremacy over COVID-19, over the chaos, over the lies. I love it. Because how many of you know Jesus is the prince of peace? And when he talked about the devil before the cross, he said, the prince of this world has no hold on me. He called Satan the prince of this world. But here's the problem in the church that some of you are so listening to the prince of this world and not listening to the prince of peace. And Jesus said, I have peace to give you. It's not as the world gives. It's not based on anything of the world. It's my peace I give you. I think we need to start listening to the prince of peace. So what was this, the weapon that Satan lost? Well, what does the word Satan mean? The devil, what does Satan mean? Accuser. He lost his legal right, if you know him, to accuse you. It has been taken away. Now, you're going to feel very silly, because I feel very silly when I read this. Because how many lies do you believe daily about yourself and about God? How many times, instead of conviction of the Holy Spirit, you let the devil condemn you? Listen, he's the accuser. Even though he lost his re legal right to accuse you, it's been taken away. It doesn't mean he doesn't still try to condemn you and still accuse you. He still does. But as a child of God, he has no authority or legal right. And the blood of Jesus speaks a better word and has cleansed you and you are a new creation. And if you're a men's ministry, I was listening online, 
It says what we do when we do sin. Instead of listening to condemnation, we listen to the conviction of Holy Spirit. And in 1 John, it speaks about when we do sin, we confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all our sins and from all unrighteousness. Sins have been punished once and for all in the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan may be an accuser, but Jesus is called your advocate. Listen, how many of you know you got an advocate? You better raise your hand fast because you better start believing it. He speaks, Jesus speaks in your defense. He helps you to change. Don't let Satan condemn you, but child of God, listen, listen to this. In every corner of your life, Jesus must be first. He must be the supremacy in every thought, in every action, in every corner of your life. Don't give the devil a foothold. So the cross has much to do, has as much to do with judgment over demonic forces as it does with salvation for God's people. Jesus is able to do what man could never do, reconcile lost sinners to a holy God, but also take back what the devil stole and reorder all creation. Band, you can come up. That parade I was talking about, that triumphal procession. How many of you know elsewhere, Paul says that Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession. It's what the word of God says. But listen, triumph and victory doesn't mean we're trouble free. In this world, you will have trouble. We live in a tension where we're declaring the supremacy of Christ, yet the tension of being in a fallen world, proclaiming his supremacy. 2 Corinthians 6.10 says this, we are sorrowful, yet we are rejoicing. In Acts, it says, through many troubles, trials, and hardships, we will enter the kingdom. Listen, we walk by faith, not by sight. We're scratching our heads, we're perplexed, we're crushed. That's what Paul said. We're knocked down, but we're not out. Because the cross was our victory. His supremacy is what we need to declare. Listen, some of you are declaring fear. You're speaking fear. Some of you are declaring what the world wants you to tell. I'm, I'm not saying that it's a hoax or any of that. Listen, my family had it. We had COVID-19. I know it can be brutal. I know that. But what I'm saying is we need to declare the supremacy of Christ over it all because he is over it all. Amen? Listen, I don't know what the future holds, but I know the one who holds the future. See, when we start with us, there's despair. But when we start with Jesus, there's hope. And he's really big again. He's really big again. If you came in and he looks really small, I hope he's really big again. I hope he's really big. Here's kind of a litmus test for you. Begin every day with Jesus and end every day with Jesus. And here's how you can know if your eyes are on him or if you're sinking like Peter did. It says this. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn your eyes to Jesus. I love the old hymn. Maybe some of you know it, maybe not, it's all right. It's called Crown Him With Many Crowns. And often what God does when I'm preparing a message 
I'll already be thinking about it a couple weeks ahead. And he puts a song in me. And this has been the song for me, for this message. It's people seeing Christ, how big he is, how big our Jesus is. So I just wanna read some of the lyrics of this song. It's so regal, it's so kingly. It says this, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee. And I love this part. And hail him as the matchless king through all eternity. Matchless king. He's the matchless king. No one can measure up. No one can do anything against our Jesus. He is the king. And in the scriptures, it describes his kingship in seven different ways. It says he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. And he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Hail him as thy matchless king. Is he your king? Maybe God, maybe Jesus looks really small. Hail him as the matchless king over it all, over the fear. Are you too prideful maybe to admit you're a sinner? If you don't know him, maybe if you know him. Are you second? Maybe you've known him a while. You're fighting for control. You can't win. You can't win. You know you can't win. Give up. That's one battle you want to lose. It's to Jesus. It's time to give up. You guys can bow over here. You can stand, you can sit, you can throw your arms up. Throwing your arms up is a picture of sacrifice. You're saying, I'm gonna be a living sacrifice as I worship the king. Whatever you need to do to bask in his kingship, is he big? Will you pray with me? Father, I just thank you for today. And Lord, I pray that my weak words would not fall on deaf ears. But right now, Holy Spirit, you give them a picture of Jesus, of his kingship, of how regal he is, how beautiful he is, how majestic our king is, how he's greater than anything and everything, that he's not sleeping on the job. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I felt the Lord say something to me, and it's something that I was praying with Eric earlier before service. You know, when they're in the storm, in the chaos, the disciples, Jesus was gonna pass by them. You see, he cares about your storm, but what he's more wanting from you is to realize that he's the Lord over the storm. And he'll pass by your storm until you call on him, until you're not prideful anymore. Are you first? Let's worship, let's worship him.